want to learn how to see and share Jesus from all of Scripture, well, learn with us at the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast. Welcome to the Christ-Centered and Clear podcast. On today's episode, Liam Garvey, a pastor from Edinburgh, Scotland, uh, preaches a sermon from Job and shows us how to see and share Jesus uh, from this challenging book in the wisdom literature. The prospect of giving an example sermon, uh, the humor of that has uh, not been lost on me. Uh, I count myself as a learner very much, so look forward to your feedback later. Uh, let's pray together and then we'll look at a chapter in Job. Our Father, we read in your words uh, in 1 Corinthians that uh, the spiritual things uh, we need to know are spiritually discerned uh, through the work of your Holy Spirit, and we pray that he would be at work in us now as we consider this passage from uh, the book of Job. Uh, we ask it uh, in sure and certain confidence uh, of uh, your kindness to us in moments like this. Uh, teach us, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, why don't you turn to Job chapter 28? Uh, that's the passage we're going to read from in just a moment or two. Well, four years ago, I stood with uh, seven others around an open grave. Uh, we were burying my aunt. She had struggled for... Uh, over a decade with alcoholism and uh, had died, it seemed, after uh, one final uh, prolonged binge, and she was only 62. Uh, as the purple cloth, uh, a cord, sorry, slipped through my fingers and her coffin descended into the dirt, uh, I looked up at my cousin, her son, Richard, fresh-faced, 25 years old, and my heart sank. He's not a believer, and no one in my family is. And I thought to myself, how is, how is he going to make sense of this? Uh, who will he turn to for help? And who will he go to for answers? Now, most people in, uh, turn to family and friends for, for wisdom, for understanding, to process an event like this. Richard would listen to the people gathered around the graveside that day to try and make sense of his suffering. It was actually already happening at the wake, straight afterwards. Everyone philosophizing over Richard in all kinds of ways, you know, from the, the pessimist saying, oh, son, there's nothing you could have done, to the optimist saying, oh, well, she's in a better place, and lots of nonsense like that. But where do people get the wisdom that they share? Uh, where do sufferers get the understanding that they need? Mostly it happens through living and seeing life. And sure, some people have actually looked at it and thought about it carefully, may even looked into it intellectually. But most often they look to what we would call conventional wisdom to make sense of life and even of suffering. Conventional, of course, just meaning that which is generally accepted and shared by the majority. 
But is conventional wisdom enough to help us make sense of the hard things that we go through? Is it enough for Richard? Is it enough for people we know who suffer? Is it enough for you? Well, what does God's word have to say about that? Let's turn to Job chapter 28. Uh, Job, of course, has suffered the stuff of nightmares. Uh, Job 1 and 2 tell us how he lost his wealth, his health, his kids. Can you imagine that? How torn would your heart be? Uh, chapter 3, very helpfully, tells us how he feels. He wishes he had never been born. That's the extent of the feeling of his suffering. And the people around him haven't really been much help for 23 chapters up to this point uh, that we're going to read about shortly. His friends have impatiently insisted that they're in the know and Job's in the wrong. But Job has insisted on his innocence. He has denounced their wisdom. Miserable comforters, he says. In chapter 27, you've got Job's, okay, that's enough, kind of moment when he says, I will teach you concerning the hand of God, what is with the Almighty, I will not conceal. Behold, all of you have seen it yourselves. Why then have you become altogether vain? In other translations, what's with all this meaningless talk? Well, this is where in Job chapter 28 we read these inspired words. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit. The ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. The path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts the channel, out channels in the rocks and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me. And the sea says, it's not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, and precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, 
we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. So is human wisdom enough to help us make sense of suffering and to live with it? Uh, Job 28 is one great big fat no. And I have two points uh, from this passage that I want to use to hang this on uh, and Lord willing demonstrate it. Number one, you won't make sense of suffering by looking to conventional wisdom. Point two, you'll only make sense of suffering by looking to God and to his. So point one, you won't make sense of suffering by looking, <coughs> excuse me, to conventional wisdom. This is verses one through, all the way through to 22. Uh, Job tells us two things about people, in particular in this section, in verses 1 to 22. Firstly, really, that human beings are awesome. In verses 1 to 11, he says, basically, human ingenuity has led to great discovery, right? And Job demonstrates this in one particular area, mining. He's taken us down a mine. And he's demonstrating for us that human beings are naturally curious folk. We like to explore. We like to figure things out. Even from a very early age, from the baby who puts anything and everything in its mouth to the, the toddler in the garden pulling worms apart and having a look at the innards. You know, from childhood to adulthood, we test things. We test ideas. We test conventional wisdom in order to grow in our understanding of all sorts of things and try to become wise in all kinds of areas so that we can best apply the knowledge that has come to us. Now, this natural curiosity leads to often to great discovery. That's the point that Job is highlighting for us here in this first section of chapter 28. Discoveries like silver or gold, metals that can be heated uh, and shaped and utilized. It, it's a curiosity of what lies beneath the earth that, that got human beings digging. It's the joy of even discovering some precious things that make man, as Job says, return to the earth to see what else can be mined. And that curiosity will not be halted. No obstacle is intimidating enough to stop human beings digging deep. The darkness, verse 3, is no obstacle. Uh, I grew up in West Lothian. There were uh, old shale mines there where basically, you know how shale mining works. There's this rock with oil in it. I'm being, this is a massive oversimplification which demonstrates I have no idea what shale mining is actually involved. But ultimately, they, uh, they extract the oil from these stones and there are just left these huge shale tips, uh, big kind of man-made mountains. But 
near the foot of some of these, you would actually find some of the old shale mines that me and my friends and our delinquency when I was younger, we used to like go into these mines, we'd break through the yellow tape which said do not enter uh, with a little chuckle, with a little bit of bravado and kind of advance about maybe 12 feet into the darkness uh, with our tiny little torches or the, or the lighter that I stole from my dad. Uh, but yet, would we go any further than that? No. Darkness can be intimidating. Fear can make you reticent to take any further steps forward. But still, for Job, he says, actually, when it comes to the best of humanity and seeking out wisdom, that curiosity will take them further. Fear of darkness will not be a barrier. Danger is no obstacle. Verse 4, when it talks about you, when it talks about human beings exploding in places that are far from human dwellings, I think far from accident emergency. Far from emergency rooms where you could actually get some medical help if you, if you needed it. So there is increased levels of danger. Fear is no obstacle. Danger is no obstacle. You see what Job is trying to tell us, even in these first four verses. Human beings aren't just naturally curious. They're actually pretty clever and awesome. And actually, he goes on to say, nothing in all creation really compares with them. Verse 7, the birds with the best eyesight haven't seen the things that human beings like us have seen. The so-called king of the beasts, verse 8, ruling wherever it prowls, hasn't set foot in some of the places that a human being's foot has trod. Using words like assault, lay bare, tunnel, and search, Job, in verses 9 to 11, is pointing out the great effort that it takes to bring these hidden things to light. At great danger, with great adventure, human curiosity and ingenuity has led to great discoveries. And it's absolutely true. <clears throat> Even if you think of all the things that we enjoy today, not wanting to boast, but because of Scottish ingenuity... It's really quite impressive. The world has been given the steam engine, the TV, the telephone, refrigerators, ATMs, penicillin, modern day anesthetics, MRI scanners, mammal cloning, uh, flushing toilets, and digestive biscuits. You are welcome. <laughs> but, verses 12 to 20 show us, Humanity still shrugs with uncertainty at life's hardships. Shrugs. I don't know. Human ingenuity, in all kinds of ways, is clueless when it comes to wisdom, providing wisdom for sufferers. Wisdom can't be found. Verse 12 where shall wisdom be found? Where is the place of understanding? We know where to go if we want to find gold or rubies, but we don't know where to find wisdom for sufferers. And people can look to universities and clever clogs, but wisdom can't be found. Verse 22, people look as uh, verse one, verses 21 and 22 say, to the living, to books, to Google, to no avail, to the dead, to seance, to no avail, searching the philosophies of family and friends or intellectualists or spiritualists for sufferers like my boy Richard, like you and me, will prove futile. 
If all we do is turn to each other, we're like a miner with a gem sieve finding only stones. So what have the best human minds offered to help us make sense of suffering? Conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom in this country is, is fundamentally atheistic. There is no God. The world was not created. It just happened. We're just a random collocation of atoms. That's what's taught in schools. That's what our society is built on. And somehow that's meant to be a good society and a help for sufferers. When our kids were younger, <coughs> we'd, um, we'd take them to the National Museum of Scotland uh, in Edinburgh. It's a great place to take kids, but it does have many proud and kind of braggadocious kind of presentations of how wonderful human beings are. And there's one area where they show you, very kindly show you this video of how the whole universe came into existence, because they know, of course, they've discovered it. And the video basically glories in the wonders of a Big Bang and evolution, and that we're all just celebrating this whole idea that we're just marvelously random carbon-based beings and takes you through this whole journey of humanity and how wonderful everybody and everything really is and uh, finishes off this wondrous journey through time and a godless existence with this final kind of happy Sagan-esque kind of thing. And remember, you're all made of stardust. Well, that's just brilliant, isn't it? There's conventional wisdom for you. I wonder how many people that have been, have found that to be comforting when the doctor says, I'm really sorry, I'm afraid there's nothing more we can do. I wonder how many people with a friend sobbing uncontrollably on their shoulders over flashbacks of abuse say, they're there. We're all made of stardust. I wonder if Richard, with that purple cord slipping through his fingers opposite me, thought to himself, it's all right. We're all made of stardust. And so am I. Boil it down, friends. Boil all the philosophies of this world down and we discover nothing but foolishness. Atheistic wisdom says to Richard, it's a shame, but stuff happens. You know, some people are going to get hurt, as Dawkins says. Other people are going to get lucky. You won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Wow, we. Can you imagine him sitting with Job and saying something like that? Moralistic wisdom, of course, offers nothing better whether it's Hindu wisdom saying, hey, Job, you did something bad, do something good, tip the scales in your favor. Again, I'm being simplistic. Or Buddhist wisdom that says, yeah, Richard, you kind of just need to detach yourself from the transitory material things and persons, then you'll feel much better. 
because suffering is essentially an illusion. Listen, Job says, wisdom can't be found by looking to human ideas and philosophies. Now, that's all very bad news, and it gets worse, because actually wisdom can't even be bought either. What do we like to do when we can't do something on our own or achieve something on our own effort? I need to put up some uh, shelves in my garage. I'm a numpty when it comes to DIY. We've got wardrobes to put up in my son's room. Yeah, I'm paying someone to do that because it could fall on my son and kill him. Like, we, but wisdom itself, we can't just buy it. It's not just something that's easily obtainable. You can't get it on Amazon. In verses 13 to 19, Job basically says there is no shop that sells wisdom. John Lewis doesn't have a wisdom department. Not even Target sells prudence. But even if you had all the cash to splash and the sages and experts of this and that, you can't buy the wisdom that you need in order to get through trials and answer the fundamental questions that pummel us in our hardships when everything around us has fallen apart and we're actually left in crying heaps saying, why? Like, why now? Why this? Why me? And this has been Job's frustration with his friends around him saying, no, Job, you must have done something wrong. You must have. This is the way it works. You must have done something wrong. But Job is telling us that there is something worth more than gold called wisdom, but it just seems so elusive. It has a source. He says it exists. Verse 20 says, so it comes from somewhere, but where? Well, humanity is still struggling with uncertainty. But verse 23, God knows the way to it. God understands the way to it. And he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. See what Job is saying? Wisdom is not that hard to find after all. Richard stands before humanity, kind of turning a map upside down and round about, looking profoundly lost, looking for wisdom, but Job taps him. And sufferers like him on the shoulder and points to the Lord saying, this is not confusing for God. The creator is not clutching at straws. He doesn't have a spade in his hand. He has no need to dig. He doesn't need to put on his specs and go looking. He sees all things at all times in every way. He knows the way to wisdom. If you've ever visited Edinburgh and you're walking near any of the major landmarks on any streets with any kind of historical import, you just see these little kind of like murmurations of people flocking around the place. Uh, behind a guide often with an umbrella or a flag hanging out their backpack. Uh, they know the way to the places that you want to go and see, where you're going to find the things that you really want to find. And if the people flocking represent sufferers looking to understand their tears, then God is like those guides. He's the one showing the way to wisdom, a wisdom 
that, is, that just cannot be equaled as verses 17 and 19 say, it is of greater worth than gold. No, no gem is even worth mentioning in the same breath. Nothing is as valuable as this. The wisdom that God can show you. And of course, he is uniquely qualified to be that guide. He alone knows where you can find it. Verse 21, creation is clueless. Verse 22, Death is a dunce. Oh, we've heard, oh yeah, we've heard about this thing called wisdom. Doesn't know. But God knows where it is. He alone sees all and knows all. And I'll elaborate on that shortly, but let me pause and ask now, are we putting our hope in conventional wisdom? Do we encourage people to do that? If so, it's important to know that what God thinks about that conventional wisdom and how he has demonstrated what he thinks about that conventional wisdom. God has destroyed the wisdom of the wise according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And the discernment of the discerning, he has thwarted. He's frustrated it. He says so in Isaiah 29, quoted in 1 Corinthians 1.19, a passage that says, well, God decided that human wisdom would not be the path to making sense of life and would especially not be the path to salvation. No, conventional wisdom is essentially a pathway to disaster. Think about it. Why would God, as it says in 1 Corinthians 1 and Isaiah 29, frustrate or thwart human wisdom. Think about it. Ultimately, it's because in its own wisdom, humanity has taken what God has held up as wisdom and nullified it. What has God held up? Or rather, whom has God held up? He's held up his son. The word, the revelation from heaven that helps us reorient ourselves and our existence and everything else. The one who gives us explanation and understanding and meaning from which we gain knowledge and then the wisdom which is the right application of all the things that we have come to know. But what God has held up in what verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 1 calls the word of the cross, humanity has been offended by. And what it says about their neediness and their guilt, it makes human beings look little and helpless like little children, like we're not wise and we don't like to feel like that. But this is God's gracious plan to humble us so that we don't miss God's salvation by making much of ourselves. 1 Corinthians 1, 20 and 21 says, where is the one who is wise? The one with the well-articulated worldview. You know, where are the Stephen Hawkings who've figured it all out? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? The one who sees what's wrong with the world and is bold enough to speak out. Where are the Jordan Petersons who know how to fix humanity? Are they succeeding? Paul says they've all been left to look rather silly. Like dunces in the corner of the class compared to the Son of God and the word concerning his cross. A cross which brings salvation for sinners. 
and comfort for sufferers. So we need to be those who encourage people like Richard who do not believe this gospel yet, who have not caught sight of the Son or of his cross, to look to him, to believe in him, and to reorientate their entire existence with him at the center. You won't make sense of suffering by looking to conventional wisdom, but only to Christ, who is, by definition of verse 24 in 1 Corinthians 1, the wisdom of God. And this is point two. You only make sense of suffering by looking to God and his wisdom. That's what Job says, verses 23 through to 28. And specifically two things. He says, okay, if you want to help people look to God and his wisdom to help them in their suffering, then God is firstly to be sought. Human beings, as we've already looked at, have put all our energy into looking to all other types of things. Curiosity has led to great discovery. He took us down a mine, remember? Well, now he's saying, start digging into God's word. Look to, look to the one who made all things and who knows all things and understands all things. Job 24 says, there is nothing that he does not see. Uh, 28 verse 24, sorry. There's nothing he doesn't see. He knows everything about everything and everybody all the time, which includes our suffering. Everyone else speaks out of ignorance, really. He speaks out of knowledge. The implication of that is what? Look to him for wisdom. It's dead simple. He's the source. Mine him, mine from him, the treasures of knowledge. And he is the one who has established all things. Verses 25 and 26, I think, are a little bit confusing at first. I mean, Job's starting to sound a bit like a weatherman. I mean, what's all this talk about rain, wind, and thunderstorms? And humanity, again, has figured out hard, worked hard to develop satellite and sensory technology to help us forecast where all of these things will fall, blow, and strike. But here, he sees something better than what humanity has dreamed up. I mean, he says that God has established them, created them, determined every drop, plotted every path. And verse 27 says, alongside these seemingly to us, wild and unpredictable forces of nature, guess what else God created? Wisdom. The very thing that you need to navigate your suffering. The very thing you need to navigate everything. Wisdom. A way to live. Uh, a way of understanding life, of joys, of sorrow, why bad things happen to good people, even why good things happen to bad people. He established this thing called wisdom according to his perfect knowledge. And the implication again, friends, is that we should look to him. Wisdom is found in God, so he is to be sought, but also listened to. God has not kept himself to himself. God has spoken. Verse 28, he, God, said to man, you see, he's not leaving us to figure this out on our own. The two simple words he said tell us that we are definitely not meant to be those who are left in the dark. He wants to shine light into our minds to bring understanding so that we know the right way to live and the right thing to say to sufferers, like Job, like Richard, like you, or the people you know. 
and the right way to suffer ourselves. The fear of the Lord. See it. It's on the page. Verse 28. Behold, the fear of the Lord. That is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. This is what Job's friends have not been doing. You don't fear the Lord when you take what you think his word says and say it. That's what they've done. They're taking some theological ideas that in themselves are correct, but absolutely ridiculously applied to Job's particular situation. But Job is saying that the fear of man, that is wisdom, and to turn from evil, evil speaking, evil living, evil existence, and to him, that is understanding. That's the starting point. The starting point for Richard, for us, as we process our pain and make sense of our suffering is to revere the Lord, to fear him. Not to be so scared that you run away. That's a different kind of fear. This is a holy reverence for his person. Where we offer due dignity to, his, to who he is, to his authority, for all the knowledge that he has in himself, for all that he has chosen to do in the perfect application of that knowledge for the goodness of humanity and creation and above all for his glory. It's approaching this Lord in humility saying, I can see this in front of me and it feels like this inside of me and it makes me angry and I don't really understand why or what's going on but help me to fear you and please give me wisdom so I can process this in a way that shows that I rightly fear and revere your name. It's to trust him and all that he knows, knowing that whatever happens in our lives or in the lives of those we care for, that it's not, as the atheist says, bad luck, it's not as the moralist says, a big stick. And not as the Buddhist says, an illusion. But that your suffering is real and overwhelming. And God knows that so well because he entered into it. Indeed, even fills it with meaning. Even to the point where none of that suffering is wasted. And that his purposes for good will prevail even in some of the ugliest, most horrific aspects of life for his glory and for our good. And don't take my word for it. This is Job telling you this. This is Job and the greatness with the backdrop of all his suffering. His suffering is the absolute stuff of nightmares. Health gone, wealth gone, kids gone. In such a short period of time, bizarrely, by some of the elements spoken from Job's own mouth, wind, 
rain, storm. How hard that must have been for him to say. But Job is introduced to us as a man who is blameless and upright at the beginning, who does what? Oh, he fears God and shuns evil. Job 1.1. It's like it's an important header for the book. He revered God and would not sin in what he said by charging God with wrongdoing. He's not shaking his head or shaking his fist. He's commended twice by God before heavenly powers in exactly the same terms. He looked to God in his suffering. He mourned honestly before God, asked questions of God, but shunned the evil of not only cursing God like his wife suggested, but, and, but refused to listen to his friends, the temptation to follow conventional wisdom to try and make sense of it. So where should Richard look for wisdom in his suffering? Where do we find this wisdom that God knows the way to? Well, we look to God for wisdom in his word. He is a God who speaks. He has revealed himself wonderfully through the Bible. He has has not kept himself to himself like our our neighbors do. He's ensured that we can know his mind, his heart, his wisdom, his son by inspiring this infallible and inerrant book. Psalm 19 reminds us and says of this word that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple, that tell us that even in Proverbs chapter two, verses one to six, that we need to go mining this. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments within you, making your ear attentive to you, to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And we look to God above all for wisdom in his son. The apostle Paul writing to the church in Colossae tells them that his great goal is to preach Christ in order to help them become mature in Christ, but also to steer clear of the deceit offered in the form of these fine sounding arguments, plausible philosophies and ideas, things that sound wise but aren't. And Paul says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, that is, in proclaiming Christ. And for those at Laodicea and for those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So where does wisdom dwell, Job asked? In him, the Lord Jesus Christ God says, in his life, in his word, in his works, and especially in his suffering on the cross. That is why we proclaim Christ to people like Richard, actually to one another regularly, even as believers, because Christ alone 
is the only true and sufficient consolation for sufferers. He's Richard's only hope. I need to share this wisdom, that is this Christ, with Richard to help him make sense of his suffering and find Christ in the midst of it. Christ, the wisdom of God, he's the only one who actually makes sense and gives some kind of orientation to the fact of his mother's death. Of this, to give him an understanding of a sin-soaked world where rebellious desire gives birth to sin and sin gives birth to death. And it's the only thing that will give him true wisdom and insight into the reality of his own impending death and judgment whenever that comes. But I also need to share Christ with him so that he may fear the Lord not only by catching sight of his own sin, but truly by seeing Christ on the cross and what he did about it. We read earlier in our conference, we heard the reminder that righteousness, sanctification, and redemption are in Christ. He is Richard's only hope. He is any sufferer's only hope. Not just for salvation in a sin-soaked world, but even for understanding as one who, Lord willing, would be saved, knows how to process his own suffering. We read in Hebrews 2.18 of Christ, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Which means that sufferers who've dug deep into God's word and who've discovered the greatest thing that anyone can ever discover, not conventional wisdom, but Christ, the wisdom of God, may understand how God uses it for his own glory, promising to do good through it, promising, as 2 Corinthians 1 tells us, to fill it with ministry potential, and then lastly, to get rid of it entirely. So no one will make sense of suffering by looking to conventional wisdom. Job 28 tells us we only make sense of suffering by looking to God and his wisdom. And that is to Christ and his cross. Thank you for listening to the Christ Centered and Clear podcast. If you have questions or topics or texts you would like us to consider for future podcasts, please contact us at ChristCenteredAndClear at gmail.com and please visit us at ChristCenteredAndClear.com for more resources.